0: Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When
1: are we going to start it?
0: Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show & Tell. Hello and welcome to TV Show & Tell the shining light in the gloomy world of the television production business. I'm David Bodicum, I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London.
1: And I'm Justin Scroggie, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor.
0: And in today's show, we have top TV reviewer Jack Seal, who reveals all about what reviewers are looking for when they critique TV programmes. We'll also discuss the merits of live television and the issues of working with famous presenters. Plus, there's another round of four-minute format at the end. So as we stumble to see if we can remember how we do this thing, then let's go over to Justin for the latest news. And I think there's
1: a fair bounce around. Yes, there is. It's that time of year when uh, we've got lots of stuff that's new and stuff that's returning, which is always kind of exciting, despite the writer's strike looming to shut everything down. So, the first thing I wanted to mention was Takeshi's Castle. Mm -hmm. So, I guess you remember Takeshi's Castle, David?
0: I remember the version that was on Challenge TV we had here, which was like Mm -hmm. a sort of weird mashed up clip show version of it but it was very successful, it ran for years and years and years
1: Takeshi's Castle is really the daddy of the big physical silly game show genre Um, it's been around a long time um, and now it's just come back on Amazon Prime, so as before what we're getting is the Japanese original which is then commentated upon a bit like the UK version of Wipeout by two comedians um, who give their own take on the action so this time around it's Roma Shranganathan and actor and comedian Tom Davis
0: it's always a bit strange when different territories take the same raw material and change it into completely different things because I've heard like for example the German version has been edited much longer than ours and so it's a bit flabbier and ours is a bit tighter um but (laughs) um it, it it's always a show that where it, it always seems like we're we're missing a little bit of the meta <laughs> in that <laughs> people sort of seem to get eliminated and yet they sort of come back later and you see them again and it's like it's never quite clear who who has done well and who's done badly but kind of, it's it's one of those shows where you kind of don't care because you're just really waiting waiting to see who's going to get smacked in in the face with a a rubber squid.
1: So, yeah. Well, one of the strange things about the Amazon show is that there isn't a great deal of explanation of what the rules are. There's a, there's a very kind of 30 second, here's a map and here's the, here's the, the castles that they've got to get through to get to, get through to get to to Takeshi's castle. Consequently, Tom and Ramesh are kind of playing the role of, um, geeky enthusiasts. I think it's the best way I can describe it. So there's an assumption that they know what's going on. And so we're watching them react to it more than anything else, which is a little bit strange. Of course, there's always that kind of, always that kind of the Brits laughing at the foreigners aspect to it as well, which I kind of wish wasn't there this time, but I'm afraid it. It is. It, it's lighter. It's not Chris Tarrant and you know Saturday Night Clips in quite the same way. Uh, and you know, to be fair, there's a lot of men running around in nappies, so there's quite a lot to laugh about. But <laughs> even so, um, it would be kind of nice if it was played straight.
0: So from the ridiculous to the sublime, and one of the most uh, popular fan favourite game show formats of recent years has been the. Uh, highly brainy genius game from South Korea uh, now yeah. there's been rumours about this, well I think uh, N- Netherlands has already had a go at doing this and as we've possibly discussed before on the show and there's rumours that ITV and the UK are, are having a look at it as well which I can't quite see how that's going to fit into their channels but anyway regardless, Netflix are said to be launching something called the devil's plan which is basically by the same people who did the genius game right. so just as people might be getting interested in seeing other versions of the genius game now we've kind of got like genius game 2.0 <laughs> so okay. so it's 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 very very similar looking uh, idea um, and it, it's effectively it's going to be the spiritual uh successor, where um, contestants vie for 500 million Korean won, and that's coming to uh, Netflix later this year.
1: Okay. Okay. So it's kind of strange, because we seem to be staying in in Asia, and specifically in Korea. My next example is a Korean format that's been picked up by UK TV called Battle in the Box. So this is a format from uh, Something Special, which is a Korean production company, um, and the idea of it is that you put two comedians into uh, a closed space, effectively a box-shaped living area with a movable wall in between. So they then compete for a series of games and challenges um, relating to comedy, and the better they do, the more living space they get. Uh-huh. But because the wall moves, that means the other person gets less living space. I don't know if you remember there was an episode of Black Books um, where the 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 female lead in Black Books is renting an apartment and she comes back to her apartment to discover there's she's in like flat two and she discovers there's a flat two a next door that wasn't there before <laughs> uh, and when she goes into her bedroom it's considerably smaller. And then gradually her bedroom gets smaller and smaller and smaller as the wall gets moved. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's that kind of basic principle, really. It's being hosted by Jimmy Carr, apparently. Um, so that's quite fun.
0: Our special guest today is Jack Seal who writes about TV, radio and film for publications such as The Guardian and The Radio Times. Here he reveals the inner workings of how and why TV reviews are written. And I'm pleased to say that Jack Seal joins us now. Uh, Jack, welcome to TV Show and Tell. Thanks for having me. Now, I need to give you a big thank you because when I was working as a question editor on one of my shows that I worked on, Only Connect, Ah. regularly the Radio Times would have a little preview of what was then quite an obscure little show and often your name was at the bottom of the usually very complimentary review of the show. Do you see yourself as as like a, a cheerleader for shows that you think more people should be watching?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of the time. Yeah. That's one of the most satisfying things about the job is is telling people about a a show and then having them subsequently agree that the show is good um, and that I was right and that I'm a key key part of its success. That's uh, yeah, that's that's about as good as it gets. I used to volunteer to do Only Connect. It's not always the way that TV previewing or reviewing works you you quite often just given stuff but you're talking about my days as a Radio Times uh, staff member and uh, I would there would be a process where people would put their hands up to preview certain programs and uh, you, you could establish yourself as being the name attached to certain shows so back then I was Mr Only Connect and it became uh, something I would look forward to doing every week.
0: The reason why it's now beating University Challenge and EastEnders in the ratings mm. is because of you. Partially,
2: yes, to a great yeah. extent. Yeah. Yes, although it was, it was something I used to volunteer for because it would be half an hour of getting paid to do something that I would have done unpaid in the evenings <laughs> anyway, which is a big part of uh, being a TV critic is getting paid for things that really should be hobbies. Although it was quite hard to write about because there's not a lot to say about quizzes and the temptation is to give people a flavour of the questions but if you do that with Only Connect it spoils it really so then you're sort of left scrabbling around for something amusing and yet not unkind to say about the contestants (laughs) or I think the trap that you can fall into is uh, reviewing Victoria Corrin's opening
1: remarks which I always felt was
2: a bit of a of a cheat
1: well the, the reviewing the the opening remarks makes the reader feel that you've only watched the opening remarks uh, well indeed <laughs> well, you
2: you you, <laughs> you hope people aren't savvy enough to uh, <laughs> to think that but they probably are um, or, or with only connect you end up saying that there's a terrifically exciting missing vowels round which there is every week so you can't really say that either so after, after a few years i ran out of things to say about it but it was a very pleasurable uh, few years before then
0: so let's go back a bit before
2: TV reviewing. What sort of writing did you do? I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I uh, was a sub editor at Radio Times almost straight out of university. I was in that strange underworld of magazines where, if you're in a certain profession, there's a magazine that goes with that profession, and it's a great magazine as long as you are in that specific profession. It's but it's ridiculous to everyone else. I worked on some of those uh, magazines. So I did one about lawyers and one about recruitment consultants and then I applied for a job at Radio Times when I was very young and underqualified but good at writing cover letters. So I (laughs) um, was a sub-editor there and it was imprinted upon me that it was a subbing job and not a writing job but a decade later I'd managed to wheedle my way into being a TV reviewer.
1: So just so we get a a sense of a day in the life of how would you kind of sum up what a television reviewer is, what, what your role is and actually how you go about it?
2: Well, I suppose it it varies according to what sort of things you're writing and who they're for. I mean, you know, the basics of it are fairly evident. I watch a programme and then make a series of glib remarks about it <laughs> that become worthless as soon as it's broadcast because then you form your own opinion. That's, that's the basics. Okay. Um, I am freelance, but I do all my work for... Radio Times, still no longer on the staff, but still do roughly what I used to do for them. And The Guardian, so it's really whether you're doing, not wishing to get too technical, previews or reviews. So previews, normally about 100 words or less, uh, used to be longer, getting shorter and shorter, um, like everything in the media these days. So that's before the programme has gone out and it's giving people a flavour. And then I also do uh, long reviews for the Guardian, which are about 800 words, and are quite pretentious, and go into more detail than anyone really wants.
0: Is there a different psychology with previews? Are you sort of encouraging more more people to watch, and holding your opinion, and reviews? You feel like you it's, you can be unchained and you can just you can let rip.
2: I think the art of a preview, in to the extent that there is uh, any art to it, is in not spoiling it for people in the sense of obviously not giving them spoilers, but also not giving them too definitive an opinion and giving them a steer. And particularly given the length of that type of writing, it's often a question of doing it fairly subtly so that you might give people a hint as to what's right or wrong with the programme, but you're not going to go into it too much because, one, you haven't got room, and two, I think that slightly spoils the experience for the the viewer. So, but what you don't want to do is, is to write a preview, and you do see this a lot, which is, it's not any better than the synopsis that the broadcaster supplied, it's really mm. just, it doesn't say anything. Uh, you've got to say something, I think, because you're giving people a steer, you're telling them whether to spend an hour on this show or not, so you've got to do that to an extent. And then with a review, I think the dynamic's completely different, because it's... In part, it is a, superflu- a superfluous type of writing because the program's out there. People can watch it, they can ask their friends, they may have already seen it themselves. So it's part of a discussion or a, a dialogue about the programme and it's m- much more of a verdict on it in a way that the preview doesn't have to be, I don't think.
0: Do you have to watch a lot
2: more programmes than you actually get around to reviewing? I don't, but... It depends on what sort of reviewing you're doing and whether you're in any sort of um, editorial capacity. So, for instance, for years I used to be in charge of the section in Radio Times which deals with streaming programmes, and I used to have to decide which ones went in, and I used to watch a lot of dross on uh, Netflix that I never mentioned. Thankfully, they've uh, got someone on staff to do that now, so she does the donkey work there and I just review what I'm told. I used to have a review column for uh, RadioTimes.com where it was a a review of the week. So it's a long piece where you review... Uh, I used to do two programs. It's more common to do four or five. So there's a column in the Observer, which uh, I think it's currently Barbara Ellen writes that. A.A. Gill used to do a similar thing in the Sunday Times some years ago. So obviously that is it's a roundup of the week's significant programs, and I'm guessing it takes Barbara Ellen a lot longer than you might think it does because there will be several programs where she's watched it and thought, I, t- I don't know, I either it was crap or I don't know what I'm going to really say about that. When I used to review two programmes a week for a column for Radio Times, that used to take ages, days of work. Um, I used to end up doing it in the evenings and, you know, it was um, it was quite intensive. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just
1: the, the person editing the section has decided this is what we're doing and they give it to you. I'm interested in what I, what you might call the Mark Kermode effect, which is if you if you as a reviewer come to a, a program with a possibly extensive knowledge of that genre or of the people in it or the people who wrote it or whatever, so you're looking at it from that sort of professional lens. The question then is how much of that do you, you might use it in your brain, but how much of it do you share with the reader?
2: Well, unless you're writing for some sort of specialist publication, you're you're assuming that uh, most of the readers aren't going to have any of that kind of knowledge. Although I suppose with the sort of greatly increased direct feedback you get these days via social media, if you get something along those lines wrong, people are going to let you
1: know uh, in no in no uncertain terms. But what I mean what I mean is if you if you know that it's based on a Belgian original. Mm. Or this show has been written by somebody who also wrote that, or this is like the moment where this particular presenter is coming into their own. This is you know, they've done a lot of shows before, but this is this is the one that's actually they're most comfortable in. It's a question, I suppose, of how much you you would reference that. Uh, a lot of the time, those things don't matter. I don't think. I, don't, yeah.
2: I mean, most of the audience are not going to care whether it's a remake of a Belgian show. You'd you'd want to cater for the people who do though. You you want to think that your audience are pretty well informed, Mm. and you know there are plenty of people who follow television creators in the way that they do sort of musicians or filmmakers, and would be very interested in it being the latest project by such and such. But I I think really that would be a detail that you would throw in. So if you know, Bad Sisters is the new show by Sharon Horgan, and it's based on a Belgian uh, series. You'd mentioned those things, but you've got to be very careful about wasting your precious space comparing Bad yeah. Sisters to Pulling or Dead Boss or whatever. Yeah. gets a bit nerdy. Do you
0: genuinely like all TV, or are there certain genres that you sort of have to kind of force yourself to watch?
2: Well, uh, there are certain genres that I just miss out, really. <laughs> I, I don't really know anything about soaps or reality. Um, mainly because they don't often need reviewing.
1: What do you mean by that? What do you mean they don't need reviewing? That's an unusual thing to say.
2: Well, you are not going to be doing an eight hundred word analysis of last night's EastEnders, unless—well, actually, there is no unless. You are just not going to be. It, it would be a it would be a separate sort of comment piece that that you might write if there was a significant soap or reality show, but it wouldn't be a sort of bread and butter review. So I usually get away with. Uh, not knowing about it, there was a time when I was regularly writing about soaps, or semi regularly writing about soaps, for the Guardian's G two supplement. But that was due to a misunderstanding, and I'm glad
1: they stopped um, commissioning them. You you mentioned about some feedback and things like that. I wonder to what extent um, these days, you know, by reviewing something, you become part of a conversation whether it's on Twitter or whether it's in comments uh, in the publication that you're writing for, or whether you want to be, but also, you know, whether that's just more the norm, that people people read an opinion these days, wherever it is, and then they, they have their opinion and they want to join in on that, whether that's something you embrace or something that you um, avoid.
2: Well, you you don't have a huge amount of choice um, as to whether <laughs> em, to embrace it or not. Uh, if it's if it's Twitter, unless you start you know locking your account or blocking people on site, which I I don't really do. I think um, it's not just in terms of there are lots more people telling you what they thought of the quality of the review or giving you their own opinions of the show. Mm. That actually happens quite rarely in in my experience, or, n- or not to a, not in great volumes. It's much more like fandoms, that there is a certain group of people who have a certain love for certain shows and they will not like it if you get something wrong about the thing that they love. It's that. It's not, oh, I watched this new BBC One drama and you said it was good, and but actually I thought the acting was flawed. You, d- that, you don't get that sort of thing, right. uh, at least in my experience. Oh. So it's it's not really... It's not really a dialogue about the merits of the show, or well, maybe it is, but it's more certain people like certain types of show. They get together on social media, and then if you contravene their received wisdom, then they will let you know about it in in no uncertain terms.
1: And can you can you give us an example of something that sort of got into a bit of a Twitter storm off the back of a of a review that you've written?
2: I, a few months ago, I reviewed a show called uh, The Witcher colon blood origin Uh you're nodding so i'm i'm assuming you know that that is a prequel to netflix's series the witcher okay i'm shaking my
1: head now you're no shaking your head stop (laughs) nodding so right um
2: you're just being polite fair enough um uh, the witcher is based on a i think quite famous i'm not really in that world myself but I, i think in the world of fantasy writing a fairly famous set of novels and the consensus among Witcher fans was I think that Netflix had done a pretty good job with The Witcher. They were happy with The Witcher. That was OK. The Witcher Blood Origin, however, was a prequel, which was not. I, again, I'm wary of getting this wrong, but I don't think it was based on the books at all. I think Netflix just hired some guy to make some, some stuff up that, was, that would fit in with roughly <laughs> the, the world, but was quite different in tone. It wasn't made by the same people. It didn't have the same characters and i thought the witcher blood origin was was fun i thought it was good but people who liked the witcher they they didn't think that at all um because it didn't fit with their view of how the witcher should look and they weren't that keen on me saying that i didn't care about that but the other thing that was interesting about that i thought was the extent to which reviews are now sometimes seen as a sort of as a, as, a, as a blob, as like a just sort of the reviews, mm. <laughs> a way of achieving a consensus about whether a show is one of two things. And there are two things that a show can be, and the reviews establish this. A, rev- a show can be good, or it can be bad. Those are the two outcomes <laughs> for a show. And what happened with The Witcher Blood Origin was, most of the reviews, the consensus among reviewers, it was that it was bad, but my review said that it was good. Therefore, my review was wrong and I was a fool and I'd made a prof- I'd professionally embarrassed myself by having the opinion that this show was good. Yeah. And it was it was fascinating how many people would send me the, the Rotten Tomatoes page as like a gotcha of like, you've given this show a, a good review, but it's bad. This show is bad. You're wrong. Which is, uh, I think, a little bit of a sort of, I think is quite a modern phenomenon because of the uh, online aggregation of reviews i'd you know i'd made a mistake that that was that was very strange as if reviewing is like a sort of parlor game where everyone sort of has their their views on it and then you sort of whip a cloth off the 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 hidden Mm. reviews and everyone's and if your thing is in the minority you're out it was (laughs) it was as if people thought that was how it works and that's not how it works i don't think
0: are there any reviews that maybe you've written a long time ago where you sort of go, actually, I've changed my mind about that show and, and now now that it's now we've had 10 series of this, actually, I, I don't mind it so much? Uh,
2: not that are springing to mind. No, I tend to stick to my opinion. For instance, I intermittently get stick from people who enjoy The Masked Singer Um, I know I said I don't do reality shows, but very, very occasionally, if it's the first episode, I might do. And uh, yeah, I gave The Masked Singer one out of five in The Guardian because I just said this doesn't work. This is ridiculous. You know, it's it's like a singing competition, but we don't care how good anyone is at singing. And then you have to guess who it is. I don't know who it is. The panel don't know who it is. This is a waste of everyone's time. And I still think that when I tune into if well, Well, I don't. But if I happen upon series 28 or whatever we're on, um, and everyone's enjoying it massively. Uh, No, I haven't changed my mind. So I I think what normally happens, though, is if it was something like I didn't, but had I reviewed uh, season one of Game of Thrones, for example, I think I would have reviewed it differently to... I would now, with the knowledge that it was... You know, if if you asked me to do season four... And it's the biggest show in the world. You have to you have to take that into account, and you have to know why it's become that and analyze it on that basis. You can. It, it's more important to do that and to respect the success of a show if you're reviewing a subsequent season of it than to go back and think, "Oh, I was wrong about episode one." I mean, I'm sure I've I've said that um, returning seasons of very successful shows are are terrible, but um, you'd have to take it into account.
0: So, Justin, I've, uh, I don't know how many episodes we've done now. It must be over 20 or something. It's over 30, over 30 yeah. Uh, it just seems like it's an over 20. And um, I've been keeping my powder dry, but finally I want to extol the virtues of one of my favourite German shows of all time, which is and Rap or Beat the Rap. Oh which is a show for people who have not heard about it, where a it used to be a civilian contestant would come on and try and win something like half a million euros by playing a series of 15 games against Stefan Robb, who is a talk show host, producer and comedian. And this format I've loved for a while because it's... Although he doesn't take part in it anymore, he's kind of semi-retired. The whole concept of uh, of this show still lives on, and, and they do about six or uh, six to eight shows on ProSieben, one of the digital uh, satellite channels in Germany. And I've always loved it because it's it's live. It's, it's a show that goes out as like a live production. It starts at about in German time, something like about half past seven in the evening. And because these 15 games can go on quite a long time, they are often playing the show like beyond 1 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> can, mm. yeah, the whole mm. thing can take about 5 or 6 hours. In, in truth, a lot of it is it's quite boring. <laughs> and that's kind of the joy of it, in a way. It's a bit mm. like not watching paint dry, but it's a bit like watching a test match or listening to classical music instead of a pop concert. It's sort of like... Let the sort of slightly dull bits wander by, but the bits that are really good are very, very good. But I was trying to think of, like, what are the pros and cons of having a live slot?
1: That's a good question. I mean, just again, to give some context, the first show that I worked on in television was After Dark. Mm. And After Dark was a late night cult talk show on Channel 4 on a Saturday night and it was completely live. Uh, we started around about 11, 11:30. But one of the things that was unique about it was that we had no end point because4 at that time didn't carry any nighttime programming. So we started and then we just went on until the discussion had finished. So sometimes we were going for two or three hours. And to your point about that show, Some weeks it didn't work, some weeks it was boring. Very often, the first half an hour to 45 minutes was also very boring, because the guests sitting around the coffee table, who were used to going on TV and saying their piece, would all say their piece. And then there was another couple of hours to go, and that was the point where they started to forget the cameras and to loosen up, and to listen to each other, or to get into a row, or whatever it might and be. And the whiskey that you hidden so in the
0: coffee started to kick in.
1: We didn't hide the whiskey, <laughs> David. There was booze and cigarettes all over the coffee table. Right. And I can remember episodes where we ran out. Um, <clears throat> where we had to go. I remember, I remember being dispatched to a pub locally to go and buy some more alcohol. Um, because the guests had had drunk it all. There was a was a famous episode where they also smoked every cigarette on the show, and we had the then minister, the new minister of health, was on the show about the mafia, and we had a um, the only cigarettes left were a battered, rumpled packet of Chesterfields. <laughs> in the back pocket of the mafia guy who handed them round and to this point <laughs> the minister of health had managed not to smoke live on television um and he was a very heavy smoker and he couldn't resist and he took he took this cigarette and i've no i think it was the longest drag i've ever seen it was like one in, inhalation of the entire cigarette turned to ash about two inches long and then fell over but to your point, I think the thing about After Dark was it was the same kind of thing. Yes, you put up with the boring bits because it was live, because you were there along with them. I mean, the Channel 4 lawyer used to sit there in the dark having kittens because God knows what anyone was going to say when we were talking about some very difficult subjects. And there were a few occasions where he would step in and the host would invite people to withdraw something that they'd said um, <laughs> <laughs> because that's all we could do, it had been said. But you know that that risk is definitely part of the entertainment.
0: So I mean, let's look at the downsides. I mean, obviously there are expenses involved with having live shows because you've got to have more equipment, you've got to have more backups in case something goes down. You also have, for for like game show type scenarios, you've got to rehearse a lot more. You know? Yeah, I mean, even look at what was it didn't Eurovision just gone have about like eight or nine. Shows. I mean, obviously there was the semi-finals and the judges' oh. shows and whatever, but there was several full in front of uh, audience rehearsals on top of probably the private rehearsals that they've they've done without people there. So right. you yeah. know, Lord knows how many times they had to go through that that set list to get everything as slick as it was
1: yes it is generally more expensive you've got to you know if you've got a weekly show you've got to rebuild the set every time um you've got to hire people over a much longer period of time and so on so yes there's there's a lot of reasons that's one downside another downside is as i said with after dark is the is the legal risk Mm. So you take a country like China, for example, where there is very, very little live television, a very little tradition of live television. And a lot of that has to do with the you know, potential risks of people saying the wrong thing or shooting something on the street and maybe accidentally showing some security building or policeman or a soldier or something like mm. that. But what I find really fascinating with China is that is the consequence of that. So in the UK, because we came from live television, when we go into studio we still have the habit of shooting something as live. You know, if we shoot a game show in the studio, we don't stop unless we have to. And back in the day when you and I did Treasure Hunt, it was the same thing. We shot Treasure Hunt as live and we tried not to stop unless we had Mm. to. And therefore when you go into the edit, you have got a sort of coherent narrative rough framework from which to work because they have no tradition of live television in china they tend to just record everything so they'll have you know 50 70 cameras who literally film every single moment from every single possible angle and then they go into the (laughs) edits and that's where they make the show it's like a big jigsaw and It's a big jigsaw and things are shot out of order, uh, you know, stuff is decided on later and just shot and ad- ad- added, and you do lose that sense of occasion.
0: Mm. See, that's the brilliant thing about life for me is, is, is the sense of occasion, the fact that you not only do you... You, as the viewer, not know what's going to happen, but neither does the production team. But pretty much, and uh, that's like, oh. well, it's, it can be a con, as we just said, but it's also a massive pro. Uh, if you have a show which is like, we're going to give away a million pounds on this quiz show potentially tonight. If mm. it happened, if it on Millionaire or whatever, somebody did win the prize. Big prize it would leak to the newspapers, whereas if you had a live show, of course you don't know. Nobody knows the results so it's sort of no. treated more as a, as a sporting event, I suppose. When where no, nobody knows, and, and that's the, the fun of it.
1: Well, at the moment, that's why it's one of the biggest weapons in the armory of the terrestrial broadcaster, because very few of the streamers are attempting live again until this massive crackdown in the streamer. Budgets. There was a trend that they they were beginning to explore live broadcasting on the streamers. That seems to have drifted away at the moment because they're just so busy cancelling and consolidating and whatever. That it, I haven't really seen much evidence of it recently. But the one big weapon that the terrestrial broadcaster has is the ability to go live to create, you know, a tentpole viewing where. You gather everybody into the same place you do something everybody watches it at the same time and of course the other big benefit of that is that the conversation around the show which has become so critical to the success of entertainment shows is that if it goes out live then everyone's watching it together and everyone talks about it in real time Everyone discovers things about the show in real time. You know, any revelations or surprises or eliminations or wins or loses or moments, whatever they are. They're all shared by people at the same time and they're all discussed in social media on the same time.
0: There's a friend of mine called John Hoare. I don't know him that well, but I know him of through Twitter and so on. And he, we should probably get him on the show, actually, because he is the person that helps get television programs onto air in terms of like, how do you coordinate which parts of which programs to play with the adverts and and handing over to announcers and all all that Mm. kind of thing. And it's an Mm. incredibly complicated process. And unfortunately, because even with a relatively, I say simple, simpler than it used to be in the days of regional ITV, but simpler system, but there's still, Massive amount of complex things that need to happen in order for programs to to make it on air. If you're you know going to maybe live news broadcast and then mm. playing adverts mm. in and then this that and the other. And I think the problem is we can't do something like six hour game, live game show where you don't you don't know whether it's going to finish after four hours or six hours anymore because everything needs to be planned people need to know which yeah. adverts are going to be played when and i think that's a bit of a shame it's the sort of it's the sort of thing that in the past probably could have been just about possible and we've kind of lost that but i think with the streamers there's technical reasons why the streaming simultaneous data to everybody who's watching at the same time is is, is oh. difficult
1: as well but if you think you know, we've had over the you know, over a number of years, we've had you know special live editions of EastEnders. Mm-hmm. There've been live editions of Casualty, um, and you know they create a lot of buzz. And some of it is a bit—it's a bit like the equivalent of the you know the the, the single take in a, in a movie. Yeah. It's like, you no, know, can can they pull it off? So part of the fun of it is, you know, this is a multi-camera multi actor episode and you know the guy walking behind people with a wheelbarrow on in albert square has got to hit his mark and not trip (laughs) over a cable and so you know you're you're partly watching it to kind of see like a play to see if they can pull all the technical side of it off um but it's it's involving it it's it's like the best form of interactive tv you know, it's the, it's the ultimate lean forward. It's how you take a lean back show and make it a lean forward show.
0: And, of course, from a cost point of view, at least there's no edit.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, that, that's, that's quite right. I mean, that's the, one, that's the one big joy of it is that one, as a producer, you may have rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, but when it's done, it's done. And I can remember working on live shows where just the feeling, you know, five past the hour when you've gone off air, you've made the show. That's it. You've done this. There's nothing else to do. Certainly from the experience of making TV, there is nothing, nothing like making live television. Back in the day when kids, you know, Saturday live live and kids morning television, you know, it was regarded as a real badge of honour to work on those shows because they were 3 hours of live chaos mm. and i don't know how true this is but i remember being told i think it was on live and kicking that the first 30 seconds or so nobody in the control room was allowed to use their hands what? so every every button every fader every knob you had to use your feet or your elbows <laughs> or your knees <laughs> And this was just a, this was just a ongoing weekly challenge to go live without actually using your hands. Right. <laughs> I think it's great fun. Kids television was such a was such a fun time. Then you know it was because it was doing so well, and yet no one, no grown ups, were paying any attention to it. So you you could do so many fun things.
0: Right. I'm going to take my sock off now, so I can press the stop recording button. Okay. <laughs> And now it's time to go back to our interview with top TV writer and reviewer, Jack Seal.
1: What about the people who made the shows that you review? I mean, whether you review it as good or bad, (laughs) do you get feedback? Do you get some response from people who, who made it?
2: Not that often, to be honest, not that often. I suppose if you're if you're doing your job properly logically you shouldn't really be getting a lot of feedback from the program makers because you shouldn't be getting, you know, a bouquet of flowers and sort of thanks for being part of our marketing campaign. <laughs> so uh, it, because that might imply that you haven't um had your critical faculties working and you shouldn't really be getting um you know death threats either because if you're slagging of their show and you're sort of explaining what's wrong with it is any good it, even if they don't agree they would be able to see where you're coming from and why you've said it um the 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 thing i probably get most often is people who have made something obscure which is almost always a documentary i guess you can't really have an obscure drama or comedy not really who sort of say uh, thanks very much for um you know getting this to a wider audience because again they're often putting forward some uh, an argument or a cause uh so they would be grateful uh for the uh, for the exposure because otherwise it's very easy to spend you know weeks and months making a documentary and then it just disappears so I get that now and again now,
0: when you're giving a review a star rating you know do you struggle to sort of go well is this a three or a four
2: star or Is it usually quite easy to put them in a box? I don't think you should do it at all. I'd get rid of them if it was up to me. Right. But, you know, I'm not running a a newspaper where website hits are very important. If I was concerned about web traffic, I wouldn't get rid of them. But, you know, there's this cliche in uh, reviewing circles you know Oh well it's the, the you've given this a three but it reads like a four uh, mm. so um, y- you know you can always have a discussion with your editor about what star rating to give it uh, if it's near to being a one or it's near to being a five they always like to sort of knock it to the extremes because people will click on a one star or a five star yeah um,
0: I was gonna ask that
2: <laughs> there was something I reviewed the other week for the Guardian which was the number, it became the number one piece across the whole Guardian, round the world, news, every section, whatever. This TV review I'd done was the top. And I've, I think it was a five. It was, wasn't that long ago. Anyway, I've forgotten. But I thought a main, one of the main reasons why that happened was because when people see the five, they think, oh, right, five star reviews. Yeah. Um, yeah, I try not to worry about it too much because I, I feel the text should speak for itself. You know, I consider the star rating essentially to be a sort of crass
1: um, bit of whipped cream on the top. What are the shows that got away? You know, you must get your heart broken sometimes where you've watched something you have thought that's great. You've given it a stonkingly good review. And and not that it has been badly reviewed by anybody else. It just sank without trace or it just bombed with the audience. You thought, gosh, that's a shame.
2: Um, Well, I never my campaign to get the Americans
1: seen as uh as good as uh the Sopranos or the Wire. I loved I love the American. i f I'm one of those people at parties who says they say, well, is there anything to watch? I go, Have you seen the Americans? Uh, <laughs> Seven you series, you know, just settle down and enjoy. I've
0: got to be honest, I've never heard of it. What?
1: I have never heard of it. Well this is the perfect setup then.
2: Well we need to about we need to this is now an <laughs> Americans podcast. Right. Um, <laughs> You've never heard of it. It's never heard of it. The 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 one about the Russian spies who are pretending to be Americans, and they're so deep undercover that they're married and have got kids who don't realise they're Russian spies.
0: Nope, nope, never heard <coughs> oh, of it. Oh wow! Sorry. <laughs> wow. I know I'm now dead to you, but like, it's just I'm just proving the point.
2: <laughs> what you mean is I shouldn't give up my quest. <laughs> but the, the other show, I've got a new one of those now, which is Mister In Between, an Australian gangster drama that again. I think is like not just good, but like right up there with uh, the Sopranos and the wire and stuff like that. Mr. In Between, you heard it here first. I mean you didn't. Lots of people have said that it's good. No, I'm I'm hearing it here first. So. Ah. Excellent. You yeah, honestly, you'll you'll be you'll be emailing
1: me in a week's time to say thanks. <laughs> okay, let's think about trends. David and I in our different sort of capacities. We watch a lot of T V, we all watch a lot of TV from around the world and so on. We've got some kind of view if you like as to how television has changed both in its form and its content what's your perspective on that from from where you where you sit there's more of it
2: um yeah. there's a lot more of it so like if you're a film buff hmm. if you're if you're into it you don't need to be going to the cinema five times a week if you just go once or twice a week you'll have se- you'll have basically seen it you know and seen everything yeah. when you read the end of year lists you'll be like yeah i've seen all of them with TV you can't really do that anymore so mm. there there is a there is a, a, a has been a profound change not just in terms of you know reviewing and recommending and what what I do but um the impact that shows have has completely changed because there is such a likelihood of them having no impact whatsoever compared to 30 or 40 years ago when that you could have made the worst program in history but if it was on BBC or ITV, a shed load of people are going to see it. Now things can just go, just vanish. And when they are enjoyed, they tend to be enjoyed more by... The people I was talking about before, who don't like it if you step onto their turf, shows, I think, tend to have more of a highly engaged but smaller audience. Yeah. And what about genres? The, the, The same thing has caused a lot more genre programming so when when Netflix was on the rise Netflix would commission programs that were in a certain genre because they were in that genre and then if they got it right people who were fans of that genre now had to have a Netflix subscription because you couldn't not see that show if you like that kind of show so now you need a Netflix subscription, and then the theory is that then they've got you because you know you find out whatever what else is on Netflix, and you never go. So, I think genres have become much more important in the commissioning of shows. Uh, what genre is this in is much more important than it would have been on linear TV. Whereas on linear TV, it would have just been, is it any good? And also, people react to the shows from within the genre much more than they used to. There's much more of a an analysis of what do we, the the keepers of this genre, the, the, the fandom, what do we think of it within the genre much more than there was before? For
0: example, my wife is
2: constantly blocking
0: my Netflix account because she's always using it for watching South Korean romantic dramas. Ah, wow. Well. There's a whole podcast about this now. Women in America who have a podcast talking about shows that they're seeing from literally the other side of the world. Yeah. I think that's a perfect example of how much television has changed and like where the influences are coming from.
2: As you've just said, you can make that your entire viewing schedule. Your whole week could be watching K-dramas uh, because there's so many of them. There's a whole different dynamic at at play there, so you get shows like, you know, like Bridgerton on Netflix, which is is they've started with the genre and worked their way backwards and tried to become the sort of the queen of that genre, which I think they probably have. You know, that's much more of
1: a genre piece than it would be. What well, the genre of inaccurate historical fiction?
2: Well, of <laughs> sort of, uh, yeah, of um, period drama for, for 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 young people, I guess, for young adults.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's reflecting. It's reflecting the genre back at yeah. the fans, at the fans of the genre, much more than used to happen.
1: Yeah, no, I
0: understand. Mm. You, you gave a one-star review recently to the infamous match of the day, the the uh, Gary Linekerless mm. uh, match of the day. Obviously, it was a very strange piece of television that they sort of were contractually obliged to put out. But it, uh, it's an interesting political point of view, I think, for the bit that the BBC has got, because on the one hand. They need to be seen to be um, neutral. From uh, that's that's what they're saying that they they stand for, and yet actually now the BBC has fallen to the only the third most trusted news source. I think they're now behind Sky and ITV. Yeah. How can the BBC win if if like they're getting criticised both from both angles? It seems.
2: I think they've, they've kind of done it to themselves because I think the, the way for them to, to survive that would have been to be absolutely unwavering in terms of their independence and their, their commitment to just telling you the facts. Um, but mainly because of their commitment to balance They've become uh, sort of a windsock. They they're sort of to- tossed and on the on the waves of opinions and political biases elsewhere. So they've kind of become neither one thing nor the other. If they if they just set their own course, I think they they might have been okay. I think they also, because of the unique way the BBC is funded, they are <laughs> uniquely susceptible to people being angry about them online. But again, I think if they'd been a bit more steadfast, they they might have avoided that.
0: Finally, do you worry about the sort of the use of AI that computers are just going to like automatically be able to
2: generate a consensus review from stuff it's just learned? No, um, because I think, unless I've misunderstood what AI is capable of, I think what you're describing might be can you turn all the reviews of this show into a review so that I can read that one? Mm-hmm. and not the others so that there's like a text version of uh, metacritic or rotten tomatoes and that this will create a sort of uber review but I, I think that's going back to the is the show good or is it bad thing if you've written a tv review that isn't what you're doing i mean it is it is. you are telling them whether it's good or bad and you are telling them how good it is on a scale of one to five but if you're doing it right you're doing something else as well you're you're making another point you're Being entertaining hopefully you're adding to a wider discussion so um i don't think that ai would be able to to replicate that and it sort of goes back to what i was saying about the review needs to be something that is worthwhile on its own it's not just a contributor to this mass of opinion um so so no not yet but Mm -hmm. i don't know Maybe we'll go through some sort of TV reviewing singularity and uh, (laughs) I'll be
1: suddenly out of a job. Or this is a deep fake interview right from the start. Well, yes. You you can't know. You can't know.
0: Well, uh, Jack, you've been a a five-star guest. Thank you indeed indeed for for your time. Uh, You'll be back for the show and tell later. But for now, Jack, thank you very much. Thank you. So I thought we'd have a chat about the way in which you have to manage talent when you're working with them on a production. Um, mm. So I mean, I think for me, Justin, the, the the key thing that I've tried to do, and I encourage younger runners that I've that work with me to do, is is always bear in mind that you've got to be respectful of them, and that they're not your friend, because <laughs> uh, I think sometimes it's just because they are a famous person and potentially a friendly and open person, mm. um, you can sort of forget that they these these people have an awful lot of people in their lives. And just because you were with them once on a show doesn't mean that you know <laughs> you're, you're going to become best mates forever. You might, you may well do for one or two, two people like that, but generally speaking, the the whole thing about you know, keeping a few paces back and uh, keeping a bit of personal distance is is no bad thing.
1: I think that's absolutely right for me. The guiding principle is always if you're if you're managing talent is what do you need to do to get them to do the things that you want them to do? Mm. <clears throat> you know what mood do you want them to be in if they are consistently late or drunk or you know whatever it might be, then you need to step in though I have to say I've also always believed that the job of Managing the talent personally is the job of the executive producer, right? Um, so the executive producer is there to to stroke the ego, to take out for a meal, to send the flowers, to you know whatever, whatever to keep people sweet, which frees up the producer to say we're going to do scene three, you know, and you need to hit your mark and have you learn your lines. But ultimately, and I think I think therefore it goes all the way down, as you say, down to down to your, your runner that brings your tea, mm. treating people with distant respect is the best way to ensure that they deliver the performance that you want them to. I think
0: I remember one series producer trying to find out the presenter's favourite brand of cigarettes so that when they were getting a bit nervous, he could just pull out the right packet from his pocket <laughs> and then they could go outside and just calm down with their favourite smoke. I just thought that was a, a both a realistic... And a nice gesture, but also a practical gesture that would ultimately get 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 the <laughs> performance wanted out on camera.
1: <laughs> well, I remember working with a presenter on a on a game show where the host always asked the captain of the team what his star sign was. And this was a problem because he was very into astrology and he simply wouldn't work with oh, star no. signs. <laughs> um So I would get them to, I would have to tell the captains to lie (laughs) uh, about it to make sure that he said, Oh, great, you're a Leo. Yeah, no, I I, I really, I love Leos. You know, my star sign and your star sign, you know, everything's fine. Uh, Because he would literally ignore the captain. He would speak to other people through somebody, speak through somebody else because he wouldn't work for them. I mean that's another whole factor is you know to what extent you indulge things and you know when do you put your foot down and retain that authority I mean I worked on another show where the presenter was very keen to be an executive producer on the show mm-hmm. and the head of the company put a lot of pressure on me as the series producer, to allow him to be an executive producer. Um, And he came up with all sorts of reasons as to why he would bring stuff to the table by being an EP. And I said, look, you know, if you do that, he is senior to me. And my job, ultimately, once he's received his check, is to get him to do what I tell him. And if he can override me, because he's my executive producer, then I'm stuffed so please don't do that to me which which in the end they didn't uh, but yeah you know, that's another factor so I think the hardest thing probably is the fact that a lot of the most talented people on television are quite fragile yeah there are there are people you look at on on TV and you think at some point you're gonna go bang at some point this is going to go wrong that the same lightning that's in the bottle if you know what I mean, is the is the lightning that's going to you know light the touch paper that's going to make everything go explode, and therefore you've got a relatively limited time within which to manage that huge connection and whom the camera loves, that the audience relate to, and all of that edginess and so on, which is is as I said is exactly the same material as the combustible yes. <laughs> material.
0: I think I think I find trickiest is when their everyday persona and the brand that they want to portray on camera are (laughs) two different things and that that can be difficult I think there's two types of celebrities for me there are people who are just a slightly more outgoing forward version of their natural persona but there's another category of people where you go wow that person is is almost entirely opposite (laughs) (laughs) what's on camera to what they really
1: are in real life well we were talking about After Dark earlier and uh, one of the worst episodes we ever did was about comedy. And we had five or six comedians sitting around the sofas to talk about what was funny and this, that, and the other. And to a person they talked about money and who stole their material. <laughs> um and were not funny at any point in the show. You know, they were and they were very introvert and, you know, didn't really want to be there. And they couldn't see any opportunity to go into a routine. So they had none of their cues that they were were used to. But yes, I also remember working with a host who was a very popular DJ, very warm, friendly Scottish voice. And he would be on set with the contestants. And he'd be chatting away to them, just as they expected him to be like from, from telly and the radio. And when the director said, cut, which obviously the contestants didn't hear, he would switch off. <laughs> he would just shut down completely mid-sentence. His face would fall, he'd look at the floor, and then he'd wander off. Yeah. And the contestants didn't know what had happened. And, and mostly they thought it was their fault. Yeah. You know, so... Um,
0: <laughs> and then also there's the thing about what I would call the, the economy of communications in terms of... maybe you maybe like, a, if you're going through question packs before a show, let's oh. say, there might be like a hundred interesting things about a particular question that you might want to put in somebody's head but in reality you've just got to make sure that they basically understand how to say all the words and there might be a thing or two where you say you know if they if they do this can you mention this nice little fact or something like that but they they've got a lot of stuff to do they've got to learn the opening they've got to get their hair done go to costume chat to executive producer commissioner might have come down to say hello etc etc they're busy people and you've got to respect their time and, and know that that's actually they they've got a schedule to keep to
1: yeah you know i think you're right and i think people don't actually appreciate how much work there is and how many different pieces of information are coming at them you know they're wearing makeup they're wearing somebody else's clothes they've got all the lights shining at them they've Got five people's um, voices in their ear with the talkback going on exactly they've got five people's voices in their ear um, and then you want them to do their thing and that can be can be very tricky
0: of course i thing that slightly bothers me about time management is that um because of the distal sort of delay that happens you know, wardrobe might might need an extra 20 minutes to do hair and makeup and things like that mm. but if if while we're rolling during a quiz there's a query about a question and people say David is that is that an allowable answer and like I go oh I'll try and search it up and then like tapping away and then like after about 20 seconds they go well is it right or not I was kind of like like <laughs> you've had 20 minutes to do hair I've had 20 <laughs> seconds to check the capital city of Lithuania just <laughs> Somehow that seemed a bit back to front sometimes. But anyway, there you go. So we're back with Jack Seal, TV reviewer extraordinaire. And uh, Jack, we ask everybody to bring in something to show and tell us. So what object have you got with you today?
2: I've brought in a VHS tape, not a tape purchased from a shop with a lovely cover, but uh, a blank VHS tape that someone has put stuff on not me at home Uh, the broadcaster has uh, dubbed their new program onto the VHS tape and put it in a jiffy bag and couriered it to me uh, in my office but they're not doing this now they're doing this 20 years ago because when you were a TV critic back then you used to have teetering piles of first it was VHS then it was DVDs now you just log into a website and it's you just like it's just like Netflix or iPlayer, um, but a special one for for critics. And um, that's it's, it's a bit depressing, just not having the, the physical thing sent to you anymore. You used to feel special. You used to get post, is what I'm saying. I used to yeah. get post, and now I don't. Um, uh, <laughs> so I, I would like to get post again. And uh, I used to enjoy ripping open the ripping open a jiffy.
0: In in the early days, would mean just needs to go to tv festivals there would be these what they call video kiosks where you'd have a long list of programs and you'd say oh I want to watch number twenty-seven, thirty-six, and 49 please and they would shuffle off and bring back those numbered videotapes then you'd go off to a booth and then you'd watch these tapes and you know obviously with no internet without you flying to another country that would be the, your only way of experiencing seeing formats from other countries and I saw so many interesting programs that I still vividly remember today there was something a bit special about this is something that very very few people outside of the country will have, will have seen before yeah.
2: yeah well there was a feeling of contraband when when you had the 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 show that hasn't been broadcast yet and you're holding it in your hands that was much better than just being able to watch it on a slightly different type of iPlayer to the, the <laughs> one everyone else is is gonna is going to work. Uh, I went on a holiday with some friends to New York in two thousand and one or two thousand, and we were all massive Seinfeld fans, and we went to I think it's the M- Museum of the Moving Image or something, which is like their BFI equivalent. Yeah. And we all gathered in a sort of library-type atmosphere and uh, sat around this small screen with headphones on and watched the last episode of Seinfeld because it hadn't been on BBC Two yet.
1: Oh.
2: Ah. Uh, we, and we went to this specific place where they have this national TV archive and watched the last episode. We can't do that anymore
1: you know, there is something about how these things actually confer importance on the thing that you're watching. It's the difference between, you know, going to the cinema and just scrolling through Netflix and, and just putting something on. And I, I think not only have we lost something as individuals, but I think the shows themselves have lost that cachet, that...
2: No, and for the programme makers as well, I think, that not a not, uh, TV critic's preview copy but the fact that there isn't now that pipeline of like well once i've got it on on the telly then it will be a vhs or later on a dvd and it will exist and then that's it it's like once you've done it no one can ever erase it whereas now we're seeing on streaming platforms. Sometimes, even the streaming platform that commissioned it might just delete it, and then it's mm. it's just gone because it was never released on DVD. Because that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. And you've made this show, and you you know you poured your whole life into it, and then two years down the line, it's it's
1: vanished, gone. And now they're pulling them off to avoid paying residuals.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't want to. Yeah. You know, it doesn't become cost effective for them, supposedly. Um, so yeah, that's 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 it. That's your lot, mate.
0: Well, thankfully, um, uh, podcasts are decentralized and and can exist forever and ever and ever, as long as we keep (laughs) paying the bills. So uh, we'll have that comfort that at least this this little chat will will remain in the Internet for for as long as we deem it to be. So, uh, Jack, thank you very much indeed for bringing your VHS tape to a Show & Tell.
2: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: All right, finally, it's four-minute format time, where me and Justin try and come up with a new format, Within the aforementioned four minutes. I have six pieces of paper here, Justin. I don't I, I know what the words are, but I don't know which one's on which piece of paper. Which one would you like to choose? I shall pick number six. Number six today. It's collision. 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 Mm. All right. There collision. we go. And we have four minutes starting now. Well, like a collision course is obviously a, a phrase. So what is the two, uh, two things about to hit each other and we have to try and stop them from colliding?
1: Or do we have to make them make because collide. Collide? that's more entertaining? Exactly. Yeah. So always always a principle of making game shows. So creating challenges is making something happen is always more interesting than stopping something from happening. <clears throat> okay. so okay, so you, it could be like a form of snooker. With balls on shoots, so you start off with you know one ball on the table and you've got one ball, you roll down a shoot to get that ball into a pocket. But as the game progresses, you add balls to the table so you've got more variations and more possibilities, more collisions you don't want to happen, or maybe you've got to hit one thing that's then going to hit another thing to make something happen. This is
0: basically what I spent most of my... When I I was 11 playing with my, my friends in the summer house so we would never play pool properly we would just just get you know pairs of snooker cues and and roll balls down them and mess around with that
1: i, I would love <laughs> to do something like that um but being television the moment of collision has got to be bigger it's got to create a, a massive spark or it's got to mm cue something else to happen or something like that. So there's a, there's a as you said, there's a physical kind of collision. There's collision in terms of people with different opinions or different views and so on. Um, so you could have um, a question where um, the answer could be two sort of polar opposites, as it were, where two people have got to argue, that, argue what they say the answer to the question is, and then somebody decides based on what they've said, yeah, or just an opinion of whether people think something is right or wrong, yeah, like a moral moral judgment rather than it being a factual quiz thing. Yeah. Um, um, yes, yeah, so in my in my mind, it sort of feels like some tipping point type show, really, mm-hmm. where. You answer a question. You get the question right. You're allowed to fire a ball or release a, a ball or something that collides, and that collision leads to a positive or a negative result. Right, right. and
0: that that could, yeah, start a chain reaction of uh, larger,
1: more spectacular collapses and exactly. things like that. So, yeah, so yeah. We need a title. Um, well, collision is a good title because it's very dynamic. Mm, true. I mean, collision—the quiz show. You know, you've got you've got a, a big kind of wham logo yeah, <laughs> kind of in the middle of it. I don't think you could do much better than collision. I mean, we've had lightning and we've had you
0: know, uh, reflex and things like that. Reflex, <laughs> 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 yeah. Kind of yeah. There we are. So our time is up. So uh, that seems to be. Um, that's the title we're going for collision. We need a very short summary of that, which is uh, uh, collision—the quiz show where opposites collide. Yep, like that.
1: Let's go for that one.
0: And that's it for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can tweet us, or should that now be X us uh, at TV Show Podcast, or you can email us on contact at TV Show and Tell. Com. And apologies if you've contacted us in the last uh, few weeks or months. It seems our email host uh, messed up some settings somewhere that prevented messages from reaching us. So if you did send us a message and you didn't get a reply, then please do resend it. But until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell.